Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast, Floyd's Rising. I'm Sabretooth, I collect NFTs for a living, and with me is Kizu, who's a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. We interview artists, collectors, and other interesting people in the NFT space. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. With me today is Chris Wallace. He's very well known as the founder of UltraDAO, founder of Woody's. Before he got into NFTs, he was the vice president of 10UP, and he's a big collector on Tezos, which we'll also get to during the episode. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Chris, tell us, how did you get into NFTs? Sure. So um, I actually had a friend who is a 3D artist who started talking to me about NFTs and invited me to Foundation, which when I heard about it, it was, I think it was just, you know, sort of uh, released. And this was maybe end of February, beginning of March, 2021. And I was like, I don't know what this is all about. I, I think I'll you know, I'll definitely check it out. He gave me a creator invite. And so I just started looking at all the art on there and that people were selling it. And it was, you know, these like crazy prices to me, you know, because that was when ETH had just sort of hopped off and, and, you know, run up really high. And so, you know, I, I looked at it and I was like, man, this is actually really cool. I want to just sort of see what I can do. And so I started just putting together like different pieces of art and, you know, posting them on foundation and people were, immediately, you know, within a day or two we're, we're bidding. And I was like, okay, like I can, <laughs> I can get behind this. And so I just kept posting art and people kept buying it. And then, you know, one thing led to another and I, I sort of dove in deeper and started collecting and, you know, found Tezos NFTs with Hicket Nunk and really dove in hard there. And so, you know, at this point now I have, I think about 3,500 NFTs across ETH and, uh, and Tezos. How did you, uh, cause I mean, this is how I first became aware, um, of yourself. Cause I think, you know, we were both collecting on, you know, Hicket Nunc at the, at the same time, that was around sort of April, May-ish. How did you, I guess, get into Tezos and, and what made you, I guess, go so hard on Tezos in those early days, I guess, pre, pre-hack days, I guess. Yeah, I don't I don't specifically remember what triggered me collecting or, or learning about Hicket Nunk, but I, I'm sure you know there's a lot of artists that were looking for a green sort of solution. There was a big event where I think everybody was like, you know, sharing around this single article talking about how bad NFTs are for the environment and it sort of scared away a whole lot of, you know, people in tech and and design and you know, all these different artists who we're thinking about NFTs, all of a sudden we're like, well, that doesn't sound so fun. And then Hicket Nunk launched and, you know, everybody started looking at it like, oh, wow, this is a green solution. This is something I can get behind. It's, you know, proof of a stake instead of proof of work. And I learned about it through, I think someone's drop or something that they did on, on Hen. And so once I found that, I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is actually really cool because it's not just the, you know, normal, like, 10,000 piece generative projects, you know, stuff that was sort of forming back in like April where, where that was pretty much where drops were headed. And it was very much like unique and interesting art. And, and they were very 
I mean, a lot of them were additions and they were just very experimental. Um, and I think people were really just enjoying the different, you know, the variety, the difference in format. People were publishing interactive objects. I remember seeing one interactive like flower that was all generated with code. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is not just a GIF or, you know, a video. This is actually code that's produced this. And, you know, that was really interesting to me. So I was, I was just very like in love with just all the different things you could, you could potentially do with that platform, even with all of its flaws and, and sort of, you know, issues that it had and, and still has today. It very much felt like this underground sort of space for artists where they were like doing all the, all the stuff that they wouldn't maybe try on Ethereum where it's like feels more polished and, and much more commercial. And so I, I just dove in and like collected primarily there because I mean, I didn't have, I, I had some money, but I didn't have just like millions of dollars to just go blow on ETH NFTs and all the gas and stuff that goes along with it. So that was kind of where I wanted to focus because I felt like it was just a better place to collect and, and get a, even, you know, in, in terms of like investing, get a better ROI down the road, you know, with stuff that I'm paying $5, $10 for just didn't feel as, as bad to me as like going on ETH and blowing hundreds and hundreds um, on single, you know, single mints. For someone who is new to, to Hickenunk and isn't familiar with the kind of styles of work there, how would you sell it to them <laughs> in terms of like the, the diversity of, of creative talent and, and styles? I think the, the biggest difference that I've seen is artists are, in a lot of cases, they are not publishing and minting, you know, sort of the most commercial version of, of their work. A lot of them are bringing new styles and maybe different ideas and, and things like that to Tezos. And in a lot of cases, they're actually, you know, maybe minting on a couple different accounts. You know, I can think of a few artists off the top of my head that maybe they have one account that is sort of their main account. They publish a lot of their, you know, normal catalog of, of work, but then they have sort of a private alt account right? Where maybe they, they kind of go off the rails a bit and they're minting stuff that's just totally different from what's normal for them. And I find that really fascinating because I feel like people have already set up some, some sense of rules around how to mint and, and how to establish a collection of, and, you know, and a portfolio of work that is all in your style as an artist. But what I love about Hen is like, you don't have to do that there even on your main account, but then also a lot of people will take that opportunity because the minting is so inexpensive. They'll actually take the opportunity to then branch off and, and do some really cool experimental works. And I've seen that a number of times where an artist will just go totally crazy on, you know, maybe they're exploring uh, GAN, uh, generative adversarial network type of art. And maybe they're doing it on, maybe they have like a paint, uh, painted sort of style um, mm. that they're now using GAN on top of, and they'll mint a whole bunch of that type of work. And it really produces interesting and more experimental results. And so I think that's actually really cool to see artists not just go in and say like, okay, I ha it has to be sort of a collectible style approach. It has to be a generative, you know, collectible type approach. And you see that a lot on ETH where it's just like, they, they sort of just follow what other people are doing that that's successful. And it feels a bit more like a, 
a money grab at times, not to say that it always is, but it feels like that sometimes to people because they just sort of say, okay, it's another collectible and yeah, it's in their style and all of that. That's cool, whatever. But then, you know, you go over to, to Tezos and it's just sort of like, it's just all over the place. And I kind of like that. I like the spontaneity. I like the variety. And it's, it's really not one specific aesthetic. It's just like, it's just a sort of a melting pot of different styles of art. And that's really cool to see. It seems like the structure of it, and especially the cost of minting, has actually encouraged artists to have multiple personas. And so it's almost as if the marketplace has encouraged them to to have a variety of sub-portfolios, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, it's not just, I think, the, the cost of it, but the, the whole marketplace has allowed artists to have almost like split personalities, in a sense. And I'm thinking of an analogy to that in the traditional art world, where, for example, you have the commercial art fair, right? Where I think mm-hmm. artists are aware that it's this commercial setting, so they produce work that's made to sell or in, in a signature style, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have events like Biennales and Triennales and, and smaller like local art festivals, where I think uh, I think even the big artists are keen sometimes to participate in a smaller festival because you know, they have a different remit or, you know, maybe it's like a, an outdoor setting or a different kind of non-white cube, non-gallery space. So I think like mm-hmm. that's an interesting analogy where you have, um, I think we need, we need, we're seeing the emergence of like different um, ecosystems or settings where NFT artists can really, you know, cater their work to, for different contexts. And I think that I'm sure we'll see new hands or kind of like different hands in the sense that they're um, they're on a different blockchain and have a different ethos. Since you sort of came to NFTs this year, I'm getting a sense that you're very sort of non-sectarian in your in your viewpoints on NFTs because a lot of the well, a lot of the richest, but also sort of those OG NFT collectors, especially on on ETH, they will be very sectarian about doing anything outside of sort of the Ethereum ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of a lot of the new sort of collectors are, are not so sort of sectarian. It's just kind of like do whatever sort of feels good, basically. How do you see that? But also, how do you see that with respect to you know your own projects? You know, specifically UltraDAO, um, Woody's. I know that probably when you ideated both of those things. It actually wasn't sort of feasible to do that on on Tezos. But do you view these things as like okay, I, I don't necessarily have to do on ETH, or, or you know, talk about the, the decision to do that? Was that purely just a feasibility kind of you know the, the tools and, and not not? Or talk me through that, especially since I, I know that on Twitter you're you're like a big proponent for uh, Tezos and for him. I think the big thing for us was the developers that that we had on the team had much more experience with writing in like solidity and and you know in the the ethereum ecosystem and you know we're much more comfortable building our project out there you know i'm not the type to you know say any one blockchain is necessarily better than another i'm not a maxi in any sense in, in any sense in that in that way right i think the the market for collectibles is maybe stronger obviously on on eth which you know has its pros and cons i mean there's a lot of competition but also a lot more people willing to spend a lot more money on NFTs there as well, especially collectibles. And then on, on, you know, Tezos, obviously there's very few smart, like independent smart contract based 
projects that that you're competing with. So, I mean, you know, on that side, we definitely wanted to look at it, but just felt like it was going to take us way too long and we were going to be way outside our element on all of that. I would feel a lot more comfortable now knowing what we know about some of these drops that are that are coming out and, and knowing a wider network of developers who are comfortable with building out smart contracts and and products on on Tezos. But yeah, it, for us, it was it was primarily an issue just with making sure that we could do it the right way. And I think we were pretty successful in running the drop and and you know making sure there was no gas wars and things like that. So you know it definitely I think paid off in terms of the decision to to stay on ETH. And we certainly wouldn't rule out I think you know running other projects and doing drops on on Tez uh, as well. So. It was kind of a funny story. Our, one of our lead artists and, and uh, artist members of, of UltraDAO was just tweeting something on, on Twitter, just a joke about, you know, I'm going to do a, a 10K PFP project, but it's, all, it's, it's just all going to be planks of wood. I'm going to call it day home and I'm going to use it to basically fund my home purchase. And so everybody was just kind of commenting on it and laughing about it. And, you know, I came in and I said, call it Woody's. And, you know, make 10K of them and you'll sell out. Um, and so, you know, we just were kind of joking about it. We had a group chat at the time on Twitter with um, our UltraDAO members. We've grown too big for that now. But at the time we had fewer than like the 75 person limit. And so we were all just in the, the Twitter chat sort of ideating off of, off of that post. And I said, hey, make a quick, like make a quick PFP really, you know, like design something that, that we can use. And I'll make a Twitter account and just start tweeting as, you know, this like Woody character as a joke. And so we just started like goofing around and that turned into a more serious conversation about, hey, maybe we should do a cool drop. And we sort of gathered all the, the artists in the DAO and started concepting. And once we sort of got the concepts back in, we all had a meeting and we were looking at them all. And one of the members, uh, J838, um, who also has a drop happening this week, which is going to be really cool, but he's basically, you know, perfected, I think this, this particular character style. And he drew these little wooden, you know, sort of humanoid looking characters. And, you know, everybody else has sort of drawn all of these like planks of wood in different styles. And we sort of realized like, hey, if we really want this to be successful, like this is the style and this is the direction and everybody just sort of latched onto it and just thought it was was so cool and just had so much more potential, I think, uh, as a long-term sort of look for an avatar. So, you know, we started going in that direction. We built out all the, you know, a bunch of concepts. We had the, the you know, primary artists concept out all of the, the traits and, you know, everything like that. And you know, and from there just, you know, did the drop and uh, it became uh, quite successful just selling out in like 32 minutes, I think, during the public sale. So uh, I guess other people agreed and liked the style of the art. So PFPs ostensibly started with CryptoPunks in, in 2017, but really the, the modern sort of PFP project really started with hash masks in, in January of, of this year. Um, mm-hmm. Given that it's, there's such a, short history and, and and sort of hash masks is, is kind of looking dated now right they given their sort of prominent position in sort of pfp history that the, the, the prices haven't definitely are not doing as well as some other projects that have sort of come later and, and probably less historically um significant as, as has, hash masks but i'm curious to get what your i guess thesis on 
on a PFP project is and, and, and what do you think, you know, let's say we're in 2025, sort of four years down the track, what, what do you think is a PFP project that launched in 2021? What, what do you think a successful one that has kind of stood as a test of time for like multiple years? What, what does that actually look like? Because we don't really know because <laughs> if we look at a PFP project that stood the test of time, it's pretty much CryptoPunks and their founders don't really do anything <laughs> really. And they've stood the test of time because they're basically historical significant, but it's pretty mm. much impossible for the hundreds of PFP projects in 2021 to become historically significant. So what is that? What is the sustaining force, I guess, for, for a PFP project? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the big thing that we've learned so far, definitely the historical relevance and, and you know, being first is, is important. But I actually think there's a lot of factors that get people to, to maybe be more attached to some PFP projects over others that sort of go against that uh, theory. So, I mean, if you look at projects that have a specific sort of lifestyle element that people can latch onto, and this is something that, that we're really looking towards with Woody's, I think that is really what's going to be a big driver for people. I think if you look at projects like Deadfellas and maybe like Zero and One Force, you know, I think people really want to get behind a specific community that sort of vibes with what they're into. So if you're into maybe anime or if you're, you know, into zombies and, you know, zombie films, or if you're an outdoorsy type of person with Woody's, right? I think those, finding that type of real life, like physical almost com community that ties into your digital identity is actually something that people are going to latch onto. And I think they're gonna, they're gonna be more connected to those PFPs than, the, the more historical significant, you know, ones like, like punks and, you know, maybe apes is another one, but I can see the, the crossover into the physical world and into the metaverse, even being the defining factor for a lot of people and having that pride of ownership where they just feel so tightly connected and into that community that it really trumps everything else. Like they, they don't want to, just hop from one PFP to the next. I know a lot of people have been doing that lately, but I think that trend is going to slow down. I think you always have those people that maybe do that, but I think everybody's kind of getting to the point where they want to settle in to just one sort of digital identity and, and just roll with it. And I do think that community factor is really going to be a, a big play uh, for them. Yeah. I just want to um, sort of dig in a bit there because I think you said that, um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, Deadfellas, Only One Force, uh, and Woody's um, having that kind of lifestyle element. It, when you talk about that, are you talking about essentially having an identity in that PFP that corresponds to your real life identity? So I think you mentioned sort of the Woody's having a, an outdoors identity. Um, are you saying that your sort of thoughts on it is that that's going to be more long lasting than things that are memes where it's like you're buying something because it's it's kind of funny or but that you have no sort of long-term attachment to it is, is that is that what you mean and to be clear i do actually think memes have a lot of those same properties for a lot of people you know i mean if you look at, at some of the more popular memes out there that have, that have turned into uh or started from pfp projects i think you'll see a lot of community actually behind it 
And so the meme itself is a conversation starter, right? And I think the way that those work is really fascinating because in order for them to be successful, they have to be funny, right? Or they have to have some sort of historical event attached to them that makes that, you know, that, that makes them interesting, whether that's, you know, maybe it's connected to a celebrity that did something, you know, that resulted in a meme that now is a, a, a movement, right? Like there's all these different factors that I think go into the history of those types of PFP projects. But at the end of the day, it's all cultural, right? Like you, you, you've got these little sub-communities that form around these ideas. And at the end of the day, they're, they're into whatever that is, right? And that's what's really driving their interest and their long-term, you know, sort of ownership. I mean, Pepe the Frog is a really great example, right? Like people have not just found that funny, but they've also attached to it as a part of their identity. And that like, that is a thing that they've really like just taken ownership of and feel like that's where they belong. It's, it's really a sense of belonging. I think that that sort of people are, are looking for in this, you know, in this space. And I think memes are just a really lighthearted and, and easy way to sort of break the ice around finding that community. So back to sort of Woody's, what is that sense of identity, sense of belonging that, that you want to create with, with Woody's? What, what is that goal for you? I, I think in a lot of ways, the community helps define it. But I do think for us, like we really want a more nature focused outdoor focus sort of brand. We want to really drive into uh, your family and, and, you know, like everyday life sort of a scenario, right? Where it's a brand where kids can get involved, adults can get involved. You know, I think we want to have a lot of outdoor events, maybe festivals, things like that, where we can all get together in different places around the world. We want to really inspire community, our community to really get out and, you know, and, and be outdoors and maybe get active and uh, healthier. I think COVID has really driven a lot of people inside. It's going to drive a lot of people into the metaverse. We are also, you know, interested in the metaverse. You know, we want to be educational to a certain extent. We want to be a content focused brand, story driven. There's a lot of plans really around all of that. Um, We have a ton of lore that we've been writing and publishing as we reveal core characters to our community so very story-driven brand. We want to take that into the real world and publish, you know, comics and books and, you know, games and, and puzzles and things like that. So, I mean, it's, there's a lot of plans, a lot of big, you know, ideas, and we're just kind of trying to take it one step at a time because we're just all so excited about it. But I think we have a lot of promise and potential to really do that and, and have a really major impact, both environmentally and within just the, you know, the, the whole concept of sort of education and and delivering content to families and kids. So, Chris, I want to I want to um, talk about UltraDell for, sure. for a second. Um, can you talk about what inspired you to create UltraDell? Because I think that predated um, the the Woody's project and and uh, was was kind of the the vehicle that actually propelled um, you know, the Woody's. So, so, what what sort of inspired you to to sort of create UltraDell? And I guess maybe talk about how you see it as maybe the same or different than some of the other, I guess, NFT DAOs that are, that are out there? Sure. So UltraDAO really started within a very specific project. It wasn't a DAO at its inception. It was actually called a faction within a, just an artist's project called uh, Botanica. So there's an artist named Liquid Density. He basically creates these really cool 3D flowers 
And he sort of set up this gamified drop system where he put people in his discord and you were able to choose a faction or a team to sort of join. And you would go after these very specific flowers and, and buy them for your, for your faction. And there was some gamification in there. And so we were, I'm a very competitive person. And so we were talking about, okay, how do we like, how do we get all of these flowers? Because you could basically get all of them from the ones that were for the other factions. You could basically collect them and then sort of hold them hostage in a sense uh, by owning them. And so, you know, I was, I was kind of throwing ideas out there and I was like, what if we create a DAO? And I didn't know anything about, you know, setting up a DAO back then, but I said, you know, what if we create a DAO and, and pool our funds and we all just go get these? Cause they were like two ETH for each one. And it was, you know, it was pretty expensive to just go you know, dropping money on, on every single one of them. And I was like, let's just go get everybody's funds put into this, into this DAO. We'll buy all the flowers and basically win. And so I started floating that idea and everybody was just like, you know, really into it. I started doing research and figured out, you know, what platforms were good, what platforms were bad, you know, how do we, uh, like, how do we actually set this up in a way that, that is not a lot of work to run and manage. And so did all that research and, and ended up setting it up. And so the initial intention was, let's go buy all these flowers. Uh, well, we didn't end up doing that. We didn't, we didn't end up like actually going in and buying all of them. And we sort of pivoted a bit at that point to more of a collecting DAO and started focusing more on the idea of collecting sort of these historical and culturally relevant and important NFTs. And started collecting, you know, drops from uh, Ixchels, who was and still is a really popular generative artist, uh, really, really talented, started buying pieces from uh, an, an artist group in Ethiopia called Yatrita. Um, and so we've been collecting those pieces for, for a while now. And then, you know, a whole bunch of other NFTs since then. And then from there, we sort of expanded out even further, right? And we started deciding, hey, let's you know, let's bring more people into the DAO. So we opened it up to new members, brought a bunch of new members in. So now we have about, uh, or we did have about 111 and that's kind of whittled down a bit to like 108 or 109 at this point and sort of pivoted into creation. So creating our own projects, creating our own technology, building on top of it, all of that. And so that's where Woody's came in and we, you know, formed this team of, of 12 of us plus a few additional contributors within the DAO and set out to, to do the Woody's project. And so was basically our first project. And uh, I would say for our first project, it was pretty successful. And yeah, it, and it's just sort of now it's like, okay, so where do we go from here? Like, how do we, how do we empower and enable uh, other project teams within UltraDAO? Because we have a ton of artists, we have a ton of collectors, you know, people that, that have technology and, and coding experience. How do we sort of rally them around different drops, different, you know, different collaborations within the DAO. Uh, and so that's kind of where we're at now is figuring out, okay, how do we make this bigger and bigger and scale it up at this point? Wow. So it's like a collector DAO that's turning to a venture DAO or like a venture builder DAO. It, it, yeah, it very much, <laughs> it very much is. And, and that's kind of what's cool about it is like, it's really, at, at its core, it's really a bunch of creators and makers and, you know, people that really want to do just cool things together. Um, and these are, I mean, these are some of my best friends at this point, right? Like we're all friends, but we're also in a sense, colleagues and, you know, wanting to, to sort of build this thing bigger and, and better. So it's, it's hard to compare it to other DAOs because it's sort of, 
it sort of has parts of each. So, I mean, you, you could compare it to sort of a venture capital sort of DAO. You could compare it to a collection, you know, NFT collecting DAO. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's just all those elements um, and it's, it's sort of morphed and changed over time. Your background before you got into sort of crypto NFTs is, is, in, uh, is, in, is in tech. And in tech specifically, if we look at, I guess, the most successful tech companies also, well, maybe we can call them the biggest tech companies. They, they all sort of come from, you know, the singular minded vision of, uh, of a particular founder, you know, we, from Steve Jobs to Mark Zuckerberg, you know, back Bill Gates. But then when you get into crypto and, the, and, and then, you know, we're talking about, you know, projects coming from DAOs, uh, building a community and, and sort of letting a community share a particular project. You know, it, it seems a lot more, I guess, collaborative, right? How do you see it from, from your experience of, of both Woody's and, and UltraDAO and, and also your tech experience? How do you view that? Uh, how do you view yourself, I guess, mm. in, in that world? I think for me, I'm, I'm pretty strong-willed and, and can uh, drive a vision very effectively if I want to, right? <laughs> I think what, what I try to sort of balance in this world, because, it, you know, we, we sort of have this like decentralization versus centralization you know, sort of tension that exists, right? Where, where we're wanting to be more decentralized and we're wanting it to be more community, community led. But in my experience, you know, I've, I've found that if you leave decisions up to a crowd or, or leave the vision up to just a, a crowd of people, nobody leads, right? And you, you get a lot of confusion, you get a lot of, you know, lack of vision and, and it, it can be hard to really drive in one particular direction. And so you still have to have some of those like visionary type type people that are, you know, sort of saying, Hey, I have this idea and I have a, you know, a, a sense of where we should go and how we should achieve it and, and things like that. And so you still have to have those, those people, you know, putting forward their, their thoughts and opinions and, and leading in that way. I think the, the, the big opportunity though, is not just to have those people be the only ones in, you know, the loudest voices be the only ones that are, are contributing to that conversation. I think, you still have to develop mechanisms where it is a more democratic sort of mechanism to allow other people to add ideas and for those things to be incorporated into overall vision and, and roadmap and things like that. Because without that sort of, sort of shared sense of understanding and adoption, you know, things tend to be a bit more, you know, like dictatorial and in a, in a, like a, in a centralized world example, Steve Jobs, right? Like you, you have people like that where it's like they, it's their way or the highway, right? Like you have to get on board or get out. But I think within a DAO, like it's, it's totally different. Yeah. You can, you can quit the DAO and go join another one. And that's the great part about all of this is like, you've, you've sort of got all these options. And if the vision no longer sort of aligns with where you want to be, you can always just sort of dip out and go find something else that does align with where, where you want to be. But at the same time, like if you're contributing and you're participating, you have, you have the opportunity to help shape that either through voting mechanisms or direct involvement in, you know, sponsoring proposals that uh, get presented to the group, things like that. Like there, there's just an opportunity to really put your, your own spin and your own vision out there and people can choose to get behind it. And there's still a lot of the political side of things. I don't think that's avoidable. Um, you know, you still got, you, you've got to go behind the scenes. You've got to go talk to different people and, and sway their opinion and, and influence people in the right ways and, you know, and, and convince them to vote for your proposal or what have you. But at the same time, it's a bit more easy uh, than, than a, you know, corporate environment where there's these like very strong power dynamics that exist where you just, as a little person in the, the conversation, you have no, you have no say. 
right? You have no actual vote. Um, but in a DAO, you, you do. It's all governed on the blockchain, right? So if you have a specific NFT or a number of NFTs or an ERC-20 token that's used for governance, right? Like you, you have the ability to vote. And I think that's, that's a really interesting new concept in the way that we, we talk about decentralized, you know, organizations. Awesome. Chris, before I let you go and, and wrap up the episode, who is your favorite artist? Man, you're gonna you're gonna make a lot of artists probably probably mad with this one because I I've collected over a thousand at this point and I love that, them all. This is why this is why but, we ask. <laughs> yeah, but I will say uh, Jenny Passanen is is absolutely at the top of that list. She does a really amazing painted plus Gan style art that is is just breathtaking. And so I've been collecting her for quite a while over on Hen. Um, she's just tremendous. Awesome. Chris, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor is Rising.